As we have just sung the song earlier, Be Thou My Vision, the last phrase of the song is a great intro to what we're about to cover. The last stanza and the last line of the last stanza says, Still be my vision, O ruler of all. Still be my vision, O ruler of all. When we think of God, there's a a number of roles we think of Him and we attribute to Him. Uh, Creator, Redeemer, Helper, Refuge. And He is all of those roles and many more. But this morning, we will see God and we want to look at God as a God who rules over His people. A God who reigns over His people. And this morning, we are going to look at the overview of an entire book of the Old Testament, and uh, that book will introduce us to the way in which God establishes His reign over His people, even after His people have rejected Him, even though my aim this morning is to give a message over the entire book of 2 Samuel. But open it to chapter 1. And uh, throughout this message, we will be going through various passages of this book and see what is the, the main point of this entire book. What is a burden that this book wants to communicate to us? The book of 2 Samuel is devoted to David, who was Israel's greatest king. Why is David considered Israel's greatest king? And why so much space given to him? Well, God was doing something amazing through David. And we saw how the story of David actually started in the middle of the book of 1 Samuel. Um, and uh, we, have, we have covered an overview or a review of the entire book of 1 Samuel last Sunday. So if this is your first Sunday with us, and you want to catch up on where we were up to this moment, uh, listening online to the sermon from last week would be a wonderful review to get you up to speed of what has happened prior to the book of 1 Samuel. But the book of 2 Samuel continues a story of David, which started in the middle of 1 Samuel, and it teaches us a simple lesson. And the lesson of the entire book of, first, of 2 Samuel is this, God establishes his eternal kingdom among his people. God is establishing his eternal kingdom among his people. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to help us as we listen to this message? Let's pray. Father, you are so good to us. You are our maker and you are our ruler. Father, I pray that you would help me proclaim the message of this book as you have revealed it to us. And we ask, Father, that you would help us as a congregation hear your word. We pray that Christ would be exalted, that your reign would be clear to us as you have revealed it in the book of 2 Samuel. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray for his glory and honor. Amen. God establishes his eternal kingdom among his people. And the book of Samuel is is making this argument, is telling this point in a number of moves. Uh, Imagine a play with multiple acts. The book of 2 Samuel 
would have two major acts and then an epilogue or a conclusion. So three parts. The first two are the, the two major parts, and the, the last part is a lot shorter, and will just draw everything to a conclusion. The, the first act, the first major part of the book of 1 Samuel, and the structure of the whole book is pretty simple, is chapters 1 through 10, which tell us how David became king after Saul died. It tells us of the challenges and the joys of receiving the throne, just as God had promised, though the journey to get there had all sorts of challenges and joys, unexpected on both sides. Then chapter 11, from chapter 11 to chapter 20, we read about David's tragic sin. And of his genuine repentance and of God's discipline. It's a painful part of this book. And then chapters 21 through 24 are the conclusion of the book. It's more like a, it's actually more like an epilogue that uh, pulls together a number of big themes from, from the book of really 1st and 2nd Samuel together. And it tells the message of how God was preserving his king and the kingdom he was establishing. God is preserving his king and the kingdom that he is establishing. This three-part structure of the book of 2 Samuel provides us with the three main points of the message this morning of how God establishes his eternal kingdom among his people. Now, the first point, how God does that, is that God's king experiences challenges and joys. We see that in the first 10 chapters of the book. Uh, by the way, in this message in particular, we will be flipping through the whole book of 2 Samuel. So uh, be ready, put your seatbelt on, and uh, let's dive in as we take a, a quick journey through a beautiful uh, and in some parts awful terrains. So let's jump in. David was anointed by God to be the king, to be Israel's next king, way before the book of, of, first, of uh, Second Samuel. It actually, it happened all the way in the, in the middle of the book of First Samuel, in chapter 16. Yet a long time passed since God anointed David to be king, and the time that David would actually get on the throne to be king. But the long wait was the least of David's challenges to the throne. If it was just the waiting, he would have been fine. But along with the waiting, we saw how the, the second half of, of 1 Samuel, David had been run and uh, persecuted from, by Saul until the last chapter of the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, it's, it's sad to see how God promised David the throne, and yet the first part of that journey to the throne is a long season of being persecuted, of being on the run, of being a fugitive, even being exiled or running away 
to the Philistine land in order to escape for his life. And we might expect that after Saul finally died in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel, that David finally would get to the throne and that he would have a smooth ride now that the major obstacle, namely Saul, was put aside. After Saul and his army were defeated in chapter 31, and after David lamented for Saul and Jonathan's death, he asked the Lord what he should do. And God directed David to return permanently back to Judah uh, because at the end of 1 Samuel, David was still in Philistine land. In, at Ziklag. So, at God's direction, David relocates to the city of Hebron in Judah, and there, in chapter 2, the people of Judah enthrone David as king. Finally! It seemed like a great moment, except that shortly after, in the very same chapter, David learns that an alternate king was also installed in the northern part of the country. A descendant of Saul by the name of Ishbosheth was installed to reign over the ten northern tribes of Israel. And this alternate king and the northern kingdom under a different king lasted for seven years. And if that was not enough, the military leaders of these two kingdoms and their armies often had fights with each other, and uh, their armies would, uh, would be in conflict continually all the way until we get to chapter 5, when the northern tribes finally pledge allegiance to David and make a covenant with him and receive him as king over them. And we find out in the, in the unfolding of the first five chapters of this book that actually they knew that God had given the kingdom to David all along. And the northern tribes refused to acknowledge David as God's king and ruler over them. Well, friends, here's the interesting thing. God had promised David a kingdom back in 1 Samuel 16. But this journey to the throne was so long and with so many challenges. From Saul to the northern tribes wanting to stay under their own separate king and refusing the kingship of David. Friends, do you see how different God's timeline is from ours? Do you see how David had to, to journey through on this journey, the promised throne, the promised kingdom, and yet delay, waiting, challenges, and challenges from those who were from within God's people. Oh, friends, God's promises were true to David, even if their fulfillment took a long time. And even if the fulfillment encountered many challenges along the way, it happened for King David. Guess what? It happens for us too. So don't be discouraged. Don't assume that just because the fulfillment seems to take such a long time to come that somehow God's promises are not true. In these chapters, there's no indication that David was impatient or frustrated with God. Quite the opposite, he acted with kindness, with incredible kindness towards Saul 
and towards his family, even though Saul had acted so wickedly towards him. After the northern tribes finally recognize David and receive him as God's king over them, in chapter 6, David sets his eyes on Jerusalem as the capital of the newly unified kingdom. And chapter 6 tells us what is David's priority as he has established Jerusalem as the new capital city. The author of, of 2 Samuel tells us that David's first priority was to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. The ark was a symbol of God's presence with his people. And it's important that David's first priority was for his reign to have the presence of God closely to the seat of his throne. The presence of God was a visible, the visible manifestation, uh, visibly represented through the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the presence of God would be close to David's throne. What a great priority for David. And what a contrast to Saul, who never bothered to know what would happen, where the Ark was through his reign. But David, once he's finally over the all tri 12 tribes and establishes the capital city, David's priority is, where is that symbol of the presence of God? Where is that symbol of the covenant of God with his people? David makes a big statement when he says, my reign, the kingdom that God has given to me, will have the ark at the center of that existence. What a great priority for us to learn from David's priority of the kingdom. To seek the presence of God, to seek the place where God would meet with his people. And for David, the capital city was supposed to be not merely the place for his reign, not only the place for his throne, but it was supposed to be the place for worship. His kingdom and the worship of God would be closely aligned and David cared so deeply about the worship of God that he desired not only to bring the Ark of the Covenant to be in Jerusalem, but he also desired for God to have a personal and a, a permanent house for worship. A permanent house where God will dwell with his people. Up until now, in the history of God's people, God had been okay to live in a movable tent. But now David, in his desire to have the presence of the Lord so permanently close to him, he says, I want to build a house for the Lord. In chapter 7, David makes this offer to build a house, a temple for the Lord, and God politely declines. Instead, telling David that actually it is God who will build David a house. Not of brick and stones, but a house in the sense of a dynasty, a royal dynasty. So God, in chapter 7, enters into a covenant with David, pledging that through his throne, God would establish a seat of authority over his people. And here in chapter 7, and turn there with me if you can, we actually get to one of the most important parts of the entire book of 2 Samuel. And actually, one of the high peaks 
of the entire Old Testament. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 11 through 16, listen to what God promised to do in building a house for David. Moreover, and I'm actually just entering halfway into this speech, this is the longest speech that's directly from God in the Old Testament after Moses has received the, the, the revelation of God. The longest time when God speaks directly is in this covenant-making uh, decree. I'm just picking up parts of that in verse, 16, verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When, you, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with a rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. What a promise. What a covenant. This is known in, in, the, in the, the big picture of, of the covenants of the Bible. This is called the Davidic covenant. I love how Bible teacher Ralph Davis uh, summarized the three key characteristics about this covenant. He says that in this covenant, what makes this covenant so special for David and for us is that death will not annul this covenant. Contracts are usually obsolete when people die. But for this covenant, death will not annul it. God will carry out with David's offspring the promise he makes even after David dies. That's huge. Second promise, second characteristic, sin will not destroy this covenant. God promised to discipline the kings who will rebel against him, but they, God will not take his love from them. God will discipline but not destroy this covenant. That's huge. And finally, the third characteristic, time will not exhaust this covenant. Time will not exhaust this covenant. The, the sentence at the end, your throne shall be established forever. By making this covenant with David, God pledged to reign, to establish his reign over his people forever. Through David's throne, God is setting up an everlasting kingdom. Friends, chapter 7 of 2 Samuel is like the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It's so huge. It's so significant. And this is a great joy that David experiences. Not only is he getting finally to 
to sit on the throne and to be king over all 12 tribes of the people of God. But he gets this blowing announcement. He's amazed, this amazing news that he didn't expect. Oh, this throne is not only for, for me and my house. It's not only for my offspring. This throne, sin cannot destroy. This reign, time will not fade away. Oh, friends, this is not a throne that will be passed on to another dynasty. This is not a throne that will be annulled. This is not a throne that will become obsolete or outdated or, may I say, out of fashion. This is the Davidic covenant, the covenant regarding a seat of authority, of a kingship that will have no end. And in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we see David conquering many foreign enemies. Yet when it comes to the enemies that David had from Saul's household, David consistently shows kindness to them. And then more enemies. The kingdom is expanding. David's rule is truly growing. But the question is, would this kingdom last? Would this kingdom really last? Will it make it through? In chapter 11, the unfolding of this kingdom takes a tragic turn. The unfolding of this kingdom takes a tragic turn. So we see point number two, God's king sins and experiences God's discipline. God's king sins and experiences God's discipline. We see that starting with chapter 11. David, in chapter 11, as his army and his generals were out battling and expanding the kingdom, David stays home and covets a woman who had been the wife of his neighbor. He had a child with her, and to cover for his sin, David commands the death of her husband by causing him to be killed by the enemy. It seemed like a, a shrewd way to cover his sin. But God saw it. David's sin could not escape the eyes of God. So in chapter 12, God sends the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin. And listen to God's discipline of David for this sin. Turn to chapter 12. And I'll read from verse 9 to verse 13. Chapter 12, verse 9 to verse 13. God says to the prophet Nathan the following to David. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with a sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. 
And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. This is hard. It's as if God says to David, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The difference is that what David tried to do secretly, God will now do publicly. And when you get to chapter 17, you get to read that it is exactly happening in this way. From chapter 13, even before we get to chapter 17, from chapter 13, actually before we get to chapter 13, when David is exposed to his sin, he does something amazing. He repents. David repents of his sin. We read in verse 13 from the passage I just, I just read, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Those words may seem like, wow, but how do we know he generally repented before the Lord? Well, we know the genuineness of David's, sin, uh, of David's repentance because when he hears of the discipline of the Lord, and when that discipline begins unfolding from chapter 13 to chapter 19, you see, the, you see David consistently receiving the discipline of the Lord with a humble heart. There's no more entitlement in David from chapter 13 to chapter 19. Throughout the process of this discipline, David receives the discipline of the Lord in a gracious way. Chapter 13, the story of the consequences of David's sin start unfolding. One of David's sons, Amnon, rapes one of David's daughters, Tamar. Then as a consequence of that, another of David's sons, Absalom, plots to kill Amnon and revenge for what he did against Tamar. Absalom runs away from David's face. But years later, by some circumstantial manipulation, uh, David orders Absalom's return back to Jerusalem, but refuses to see his face. A very passive-aggressive response. Upon return, Absalom begins swaying the hearts of the Israelites and builds up a following among the Israelites and builds up a revolution against David. So much so that David has to run away, away from Jerusalem. The unified kingdom that God had given David is now on the brink of a civil war being led by David's own son, Absalom. And at the advice of Ahitophel, which was the wisest counselor in Israel, Absalom defiled the women that belonged to David's house 
that David had left in Jerusalem to watch and keep for the palace. And he did it. Ahithophel advised Absalom to do it exactly, word for word, the way God decreed the discipline against David back in chapter 12. And so Absalom brings shame, public shame upon David by carrying out God's punishment. Yet God planned for Absalom's revolt to come to an end because God had decreed that Absalom would be killed by David's men. The sword continued to devour David's own family, just as God had decreed. Friends, these were the painful consequences to the foolish path of sin that King David took back in chapter 11. And all of this is detailed out from chapter 11 all the way to chapter, even chapter 20. Even in chapter 20, there are some reminiscences of, of the things that have happened, or had to be sorted out. Uh, because of the sin that David had committed. Friends, how surprising to, to find so much detail about David's failures and consequences in a book that thought to highlight David's greatness. Isn't it surprising that a book that sought to highlight David's greatness would actually spend so much time to unfold for us the deep sin and the tragic sin that David had taken. What a gracious act from God to inspire these details to be captured as part of Holy Scripture, to write so much about the unholy acts of this king, the consequences of David's sin, the unfolding and the description of those consequences took much longer time to tell than the description of his sin itself. And this is important for us to learn. Because it tells us that if it took only one chapter to describe David's sin, it would take eight chapters to unfold for us the consequences of it. Sin costs more than you are willing to pay for it. though the price is never advertised truly on the front end. Sin costs more than you are willing to pay for it, though its true price is never advertised adequately on the front end. The consequence of sin for David remain even if the sin had been forgiven by God as early as chapter 12. Nathan assures David that God had covered his sin, that God had forgiven his sin because David's repentance was genuine back in chapter 12. The consequences of sin are not the things that you have to sort of pay for in order to cover your sin. Oh no. God graciously covers for David's sin 
as soon as David repents, back in chapter 12. And yet the consequences remain. One of the signs that David's repentance was genuine is that even though God had forgiven David's sin, David receives these consequences and responds to them in a very humble way. And perhaps this is the reason why we see such a slow motion of these consequences. Uh, not all of the responses that David had through these consequences were ex positive examples. And many times throughout this unfolding of, of this consequence of sin, David remains passive towards his family. But we will see signs of hope that David responded well to God's discipline. Friends, this tells us that when even the greatest of God's kings that he had established on the earth, even when he sinned, it was necessary for that sin to be confronted and dealt with. And this tells us and teaches us to consider the reality of what sin does in our lives, what sin does in our relationship with God. Do you have a tendency to, sit, to treat sin lightly? Do you have friends who can tell you and call you out on your sin when you tend to go off? Are there people in your life that you are inviting to confront you when you're, when you're inclined towards sin? Do you have people who ask you uncomfortable questions? Can you think in your mind of just one name? that you have asked in the past and have given permission to, to ask you the hard questions? Can you think of one person you have given permission and took the initiative to ask, hey, I want you to be asking me the hard questions when you see me uh, veering off. Is there someone in your life that you have that kind of a close relationship with? If you cannot think of such a person, would you pray that the Lord would help you find someone this week and uh, ask that person, reach out to that person, and ask that person to be that kind of person for you. Because even, even the greatest of God's people in the Old Testament, even King David in his greatness, was not shielded and protected from the reality of the lure of sin that lies right around us. And even the ark of God's presence, the ark of the covenant being in Jerusalem, was not enough to protect David from being lured into that sin. We need to take sin seriously. That's why as a congregation in our services on Sunday mornings, in general, most of the Sundays we have a prayer of confession of sin. Because we want to remind one another that we want to be vigilant in our fight against sin. Some of the prayers will, will confess things and will bring items of confession in the prayers that may seem a little audacious or a little too much for some of us. And the reality is some of us may be tempted with thoughts that just seem a little too crazy. We should never take the battle with sin lightly or just assume that we are beyond it. Do you tend to use your influence or accomplishments to cover up for your sin, to think that's not a big deal? 
Are you someone who seeks to hide your sin away? Well, friends, this second section of the book of 2 Samuel tells us that these battles with sin are happening and need to happen even with um, and among the greatest of God's people, King David. We could say he was a great king. That's the first part of 1 Samuel. The second half, the second act would say he was a great sinner. He was a great sinner. But the hope that we have in this second part is that he was quick to repent. When confronted with his sin, he was quick to repent, and he did it genuinely. This section also may encourage us to have a tendency to make idols out of human leaders, even spiritual leaders. This section reminds us that even the best of spiritual leaders have flaws and can actually fall into sin. And we should be cautious of not making idols even of the best of spiritual leaders. But the last part of this book and the closing part of this book is that despite the, the tragic turn that David has taken it, during his reign, God still preserves the kingdom and the king. God preserves the kingdom and the king. And we see this uh, highlighted in the epilogue of the book, in chapters 21 through 24. This last section of 2 Samuel uh, is uh, a bit weird because it does not present things chronologically anymore. It's sort of the chronology of the book has come to an end. And from this point forward, it's a, it's a sort of a thematic summary of some of the big key things of the books of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel combined. So don't read these chapters thinking chronology. The author is, is arranging this material in a very uh, particular way to drive home an important point. And the point is that despite all the failures and challenges, God preserves the kingdom and the king because of his grace and because of his covenant. How do we see that? Well, the first part of this epilogue, chapter 21, and the last chapter of the epilogue, chapter 24, mirror one another. In both of them, the wrath of God is kindled against his people for various reasons. And, and we have to realize here that even the kingdom, as God set it up through the throne of David, cannot just think that somehow the, th the, the wrath of God is no longer a danger for us. The wrath of God continues to be a reality that the king leading on God's throne has to be wrestling with. Chapter 21 and chapter 24 not only present that the wrath of God continues to be a problem for the people of God, but actually tells us how that wrath is being dealt with. It's not being dealt with by David's army. Military power and military strength will not avert the wrath of God. Next, um, next to, to the wrath of God, the, the episodes of the wrath of God, are lists of, men, of David's mighty men on both sides. It's as a, as a cushion. And uh, we read 
of these lists of mighty men, and they are juxtaposed next to the, the, how, how the wrath of God is dealing with the people of God in chapter 21, in chapter 24. David's men have no solution for the wrath of God. And that's helpful for us to know, because that's not where the solution is. And in the middle, after the list of men, in the middle of these lists of men, of mighty, David's mighty men, are two songs. Two songs that David had written. One, the first one, is in chapter 22. The second one is in chapter 23. The first song is actually a, almost a verbatim repeat of Psalm 18 that the narrator is putting here at the end of 2 Samuel chapter 22. And most likely it was written before the events of chapter 11. Most likely. It sort of goes back to the first half of, of David's reign and highlights the fact that God has been faithful to his promises to protect his king and to give him strength despite all the challenges that he has faced as he came to the throne. It's an incredible chapter. If you ask Mary Catherine, she'll tell you she's memorized it all. It's, 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 a, it's a chapter worth memorizing. It's long. David's words in chapter 22, uh, we find out that are actually a fulfillment of Hannah's words back in 1 Samuel chapter 2. So many of the ideas, the themes, the images that Hannah spoke of in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel are now fulfilled at the end of 2 Samuel as David is, is putting the psalm together. And then the final song in chapter 23 is a song that speaks, we are told that these are the last words of David. Clearly these words were written after the events of chapter 24. But again, the author is trying to rearrange the chronology because he's got a point to tell. These are the last words of David. Think of like the, the Great Commission, the last words of Jesus before he went back to the Father. These words in chapter 23 are the last words of David that he wants to leave with us. And listen to the words he gives. He says, turn to 23. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 5. Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God. He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things 
and secure. In these last words, David reminds us of the everlasting covenant that God made with him back in chapter 7. And the reason why his kingdom will last forever is not because David acted faithfully. He hasn't. It's because that of God's promise to do what he said he would do. Because of God's everlasting covenant. Often David lived out the hopes of this song. Many times he was the king who reigned over his people in righteousness. But the writer wants us to know that he failed often as well. That he is actually not the king of, of Psalm or of, of the song in chapter 23. He was the ideal that God had promised, but that actually David is not the king who actually would reign in righteousness in the fear of God over his people in the consistent, enduring way. How do we know that? Well, if you've been listening, uh, which you have, the middle of this book has told us David is not the king who has reigned in righteousness. And if that didn't give us enough of a clue, the narrator will pick up a story from the past and will put it at the end of the song, coming up after chapter 23. In chapter 24, a weird story. A story that otherwise say, what, what do we make with this? Why would the story of the book of 2 Samuel end on this note that King David sins again against the Lord by counting the people, by doing the census? And as a result of this sin, 70,000 people of Israel die. That is a very different picture than the the flourishing of the people of God from chapter 23. It's as if the writer of 2 Samuel is saying the king David, that the king that David spoke about in chapter 23 is still a king we are waiting for. Is still a king that David was looking forward to. His greatness took some tragic turns and very painful consequences. But David's greatness is that his life and aspirations continued to trust that God will bring such a king on his throne. That the covenant that God had made with David will last, will be established, it will make it through even despite the failures, even despite the sin problems, even despite the rebellion that, that the very kings on this throne will end up performing. He actually, at the end of this story in chapter 24, at the end of the story, David finally comes to understand what it takes for the wrath of God to be averted from the people of God. David finally comes to understand the cost of sin. 
when he says, and turn to 24, verse 17. And David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned, and I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. The David of chapter 24 had come a far way from the David of chapter 11. The David who committed, who stayed home and committed adultery by stealing his neighbor's wife and would rather kill her husband is now offering himself and his offspring to be the target of God's wrath so that the people of God would be spared. David had come a long way. David had learned some lessons. Oh, friends, David is telling to us, he catches glimpses that being under the reign of a perfectly just king would actually bring peace and harmony and flourishing to the people of God. David wasn't that king. But he wished he would have taken the cost to avert the wrath that he himself has triggered against God's people. And David is looking forward to a time when someone on the throne will come who actually lived perfectly, in perfect righteousness, on the throne of David. The reason why this book is important for us Christians is because this book actually tells us of God's intent to establish a reign and a covenant that will have no end. It promises the incredible benefits of the people who will stand under such a king, who will have a king of, of this caliber that God puts over them. But the book ends on this sour note that David is yet not that king. And David himself knows it. Christians, we have much to learn from David. Much we should be interested in David, not because of his great stories, not because of his great courage, not because of his great poems and songs, but because through David... God promised to establish an everlasting kingdom. And at the end of this book, we were asking, will this kingdom make it through? Will it last? The challenges, the challenges even of the unfaithful kings. And the answer that David leaves us with is, yes, it will. And it's not because of me. It's not because of me. Someone will come on this throne And his name is Jesus. So when the first presentation of Jesus, if you turn to Matthew 1, 1, the very first verse of the New Testament, and the author, uh, Matthew, introduces Jesus, he says this about him, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. 
It's the first title given to Jesus, Son of David. When Paul, the apostle, is encouraging Timothy to remember Jesus Christ and to remember the gospel, Paul describes Jesus in this way to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. The gospel speaks of Jesus as being the offspring of David. No wonder that when Matthew describes the gospel Jesus proclaimed, the actual content of the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, he says in Matthew 4 that this is the way Jesus was teaching. He went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. It's not merely a gospel of salvation. It's a gospel of the kingdom. Which kingdom? The kingdom that God promised to establish back in, first, in 2 Samuel chapter 7 through the Davidic covenant. It's the gospel of the kingdom. David had failed. David was not the king that could usher in all the benefits that the new covenant that God was promising to David um, would, would be able to provide. David was not that king, but a king would come. And now the gospel of Jesus Christ is the gospel of this kingdom that God had promised. No wonder that when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, the Lord's prayer started with these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. For the first time in the coming of Jesus, a king would come on the throne of David who would do the rule and will of God on earth as God decreed it in heaven perfectly, even to the point of death, even to the point of being the target of the punishment of God, to avert the wrath of God so that the sheep of God would be spared their lives. This is the kingdom that God establishes. He promised to bring it. He promised it to David. Things went bad with David, but the kingdom was not thwarted. The kingdom would last, and the king that God promised would finally come. God established his eternal kingdom among his people. This is the message of 2 Samuel. This endless throne, it's God's promise. This endless, endless throne is God's gift. This endless throne is God's grace. Let me ask you, what keeps you away from being under such a king? What would lure you away to keep running after the king that you set up in your own heart, like the northern tribes of Israel have, have, have done consistently and over and over and over again? When God sets up over us such a king, why would you run after other kings? Let's pray.